Uh, So now we're going to be reading the Bible together. At City Light, we study the Bible because we believe that it's God's word, and as it is read and taught clearly, it is him speaking to us. So today we are reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 to 23. Um, As I said before, we don't have the passage on the screen, so if you would like a Bible, just put your hand up and Anna will be able to bring one over to you. Otherwise, just open it up on your devices, Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 to 33. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. Great to have you with us. Uh, whether you're online tuning in for the first time or a part of this church regularly, so good to have you with us as we move through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, as Felicity was saying, this is our last week in the building here, and as if we needed any more encouragement, the computer just crashed this morning. As just God's way of saying, "All right, it's time to get out of here, everyone. We've we've had enough now. It's been a good run, um, but it's." Um, It'll be great to be down there together, yet we'll be able to sing, albeit with masks, but just, you know, bit by bit, we're sort of getting closer and closer to normal again. Um, so thanks for being with us this morning, even if you're online or here in person. Really appreciate it, and it's a blessing to be able to gather together at all um, safely. But um, this morning, we're getting into a large, a large kind of section of gospels, uh, Matthew's Gospel, a whole chapter with three stories in it. And really there is one, even though there's three stories, there is one theme that binds them all together and it's this, that to follow Jesus is going to mean experiencing both danger and power. The first story is more on the danger side, the second on the power, and in the third they kind of come together. But the reason this is relevant is because we live in a culture that is actually pretty good with safety. A few months ago in this building, we had an insurance audit, a safety audit, which is every bit as thrilling as it sounds. (laughs) After doing kind of a walkthrough on the site, we sat down and uh, the insurance guy just pinged me with question after question on our policies. And the first ones are kind of the ones, the usual suspects, HR and then um, child protection, they're kind of passed to play things. If you're gonna be any kind of competent organization, you need to be across that stuff. But then he started drilling down into just smaller stuff. Like he said to me, what's your gutter policy? I was like, okay, well, I guess our policy is when we have a working bee, we clean the gutters. And he's like, okay, so who cleans the gutters? I was like, volunteers from church. He said, do those volunteers use ladders? I was like, well, last time I checked, we didn't have any 14-foot members. Yeah, they use use ladders. 
And he said, so what's your ladder policy? I was like, oh, I was like, come on, come on, man. And at, th at that point, he could start to tell I was getting a bit shirty. And, um, and so uh, I said to him, look, our size organization, how, what, what size compendium are we going to need to produce in order to, you know, be an organization? He says, look, well, you don't have to have all of this stuff, right? But he said, just think with me on this. Say someone's using a ladder and they're a volunteer and they break their knee and they can't work, then you're putting them in a position where either they have to sue the church they love to be able to survive or be crippled with debt. And at that point I was like, yeah, that's actually, that's a pretty good point. <laughs> Fair enough, all right, we've got our ladder policy together, blah, blah, blah. But as I was reflecting after that meeting, I was like, man, it's amazing that we are, we are actually incredibly good as a society at safety. Like, we've made a lot of gains in terms of safety, and they're, they're good. There are lots of needless injuries that we now avoid. Do you know in Sydney, we used to have something called Cracker Day, and most of us would be too young to remember this. I can only vaguely remember it when I was four years old. I'm pretty sure it was a Queen's birthday, and this is what used to make the Queen's birthday so significant, was the government just said, get as many fireworks as you like. You're two years old, get them. You're eight years old, get them. Whatever age, just get as many fireworks as you like and go nuts for a day. And it would be so full on that actually there would be a smoke haze over Sydney for the next few days because so many crackers went off. But you know what else also used to happen? Was that the emergency rooms would be inundated with people who'd lost fingers or had permanent eye damage. So, you know, we've kind of moved on from stuff that was like needlessly injurious, right? But there is something else going on in our culture. Is that people are also, I think, incredibly bored. In 1854, Henry David Thoreau wrote Walden, and even if you haven't read it, you've probably come across this quote before when he says, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them. And I think what he's saying is men and women live lives that are so dedicated to safety and comfort that when their time comes to go out of this world, they feel like, you know what, I could have gave more, could have done more, could have been more. Sometimes our safety culture can lead us to live safe, sometimes even selfish little lives that really, when we finish, still have the song left in them. Every day can just be the same, living, consuming, getting by, thinking about our own personal immediate needs, and we miss the sense of maybe even danger or adventure or the sense that our lives were so full of purpose that it was worth throwing everything into. With a claim of Jesus that to follow him will mean experiencing both danger and power. That in these stories, we see the risk of following Jesus, that he was not backwards about. He didn't hide it away in the fine print. He said, if you're going to follow me, count the cost up front because it's not going to be safe. But also, those who follow him will experience his saving power at work in their lives. So I'm going to pray that as we open up Matthew 14, that we'd see both things, both the danger and the power of following Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would see you as you really are. And we praise you that you are the one who sent Jesus to die on our behalf, that we might be eternally safe, but that this might free us up to take risks, to live for your glory, and to love and serve other people like Jesus did. And Father, we pray that you'd strengthen and empower us by your Spirit for this purpose. Amen. The first story here is the story about Jesus' weird cousin. Now, every family has a weird cousin, and if yours doesn't, guess what? It's you. But Jesus' family was like all others. He had a weird, oddball cousin who was a prophet, 
And his cousin's job was to go off into the desert to eat locusts and honey. All we're told about him is that he eats locusts, honey, and he's hairy. So again, not, not a real party to be around. But he was getting people, God's people ready for Jesus. He was saying, look, the coming Messiah, the King is coming. The one that Jesus promised is coming. Get ready. He's on the way. Um, but part of his ministry was calling people out. And in this story, we see that that was the very thing that led to his death. Look at what happens in Matthew 14. Now, you, don't, you won't have it on the screen for you, so just listen along as we go. But at that time, it says, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So Herod, who was king over the region where Jesus was, is now paranoid because he thinks John the Baptist, Jesus' weird cousin, has died and come back to life as Jesus, who's now doing all these miraculous things. And the reason he's paranoid is because of what we find out next. It says, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. John, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and it pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths, he and his, guests, uh, and, and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Herod the Tetrarch here was the heir, the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great we met earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. He was the psychopath king who tried to have Jesus killed when he was born because he feared that the people were going to make him king of the Jews and Herod wanted to be king of the Jews. But he dies and he passes the kingdom on to his son, Herod the Tetrarch. Now, if that sounds unimpressive because Herod the Tetrarch just inherited everything from daddy, just know that Herod the Great killed three of his sons, so it was quite an achievement to have survived and to have become king after him. And so here we have Herod the Tetrarch, who is every bit as bad as his father. Now the controversy here is that Herod had one other surviving brother, and Herod was married and his brother was married. Herod decided that he didn't like his wife, so he decided to take his brother's wife. She divorced her husband, and then he divorced, and then they got together. Now the reason John the Baptist called this out was because the wife that Herod married was also his niece. And John the Baptist said, that is not okay. And even though John the Baptist had no power and no official influence, he spoke truth to power and Herod did not like this. But at the same time, even though Herod didn't like this, he felt stuck. He wanted to kill John the Baptist, but at the same time he knew that a lot of the people liked John the Baptist, so he was just left with him. Until it was his birthday and his wife's daughter, who was also his niece, if you think about it. Don't worry about it, it'll do your head in. But she dances, he's impressed by this, and he says to her, anything you want, I'll get it for you. And she says, because her mother insinuated it, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So if you've heard the phrase, give their head on a platter, it comes from this story in the Bible. And John is killed, and his head is presented on a platter in the most gruesome way. And that is how John the Baptist came to his end. And for the first time in the Gospel of Matthew, 
we start to see that danger is getting closer and closer to Jesus' disciples. This is the first time that someone connected with Jesus and his ministry has died. But as the gospel goes on, we'll see that things, the danger and the violence get closer and closer to Jesus' people and obviously to Jesus himself. But at this point, it feels like the storm clouds are starting to gather. And there's a warning here that following Jesus is not going to be safe. Now, you might not find yourself in the same position as John the Baptist, but Jesus says, if you follow me, you will lose stuff. You will lose face, you will lose standing, you will lose money, you will lose sleep. For following Jesus, it is risky and it is costly. Jesus isn't sneaky about this. He says, count the cost of following me up front. Because his claim is not that following him is just going to be risky, but that it's going to be worth it. But of course, with the danger of following Christ, also comes experiencing his saving power. And so in the next story, his disciples are with him, and they're teaching a whole bunch of people. We're told that there were 5,000 men plus women and children, so a crowd of 10,000, maybe 15,000 people. And they're all listening to Jesus teach, and they're listening for so long, and the day is going on so far that night is actually starting to come over. And at this point, the disciples say to Jesus, hey, look, night's coming, everyone's hungry, just stop teaching, send people home. And instead, Jesus says, no, I'm going to feed them right here. And with a very small portion of food, he feeds, miraculously, a group of 10,000 plus people. And the disciples are amazed. They're like, we have never seen anything like this. They experience the power of Jesus in front of them in, an, in a way that's utterly unexplainable unless this is the Son of God in their midst. And they cannot believe it. But then the story takes a bit of a turn. And in the final story out of the three, we see the danger and the power of Jesus come together in a single story. We'll pick it up in Matthew 14 at sentence 22 with Jesus finishing up a day of teaching and he says this to his disciples. It says, Immediately he made the disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So Jesus makes the disciples go. And the word, the word here is reasonably forceful. It says made them go. So the, it gives the sense that they were maybe a little bit apprehensive about setting out to sea. The reason for it is nighttime, I mean, even in the modern day, sailing at nighttime is a nerve-wracking experience. But in the ancient world, night and the sea were the two most dangerous things in the human experience. And Jesus is sending them out to experience both at the same time. So you can understand they're a little bit apprehensive about setting out to sail just as things are getting dark. But Jesus sends them off, and he goes and dismisses the crowds. Now, it's a, it's a funny term, dismisses the crowds. I imagine like a teacher with a classroom saying, y'all can go home now, like with the school bell rings or something like that, and then everyone just legs it. But dismissing the crowds after a day of serving people probably looked more like praying for them, listening to them, and then gradually sending off 10,000-odd people, right? But after that, as Jesus so often does in the Gospels, tired after a day of ministry because he was fully human and fully God, he goes to get some rest and refreshment by spending time in prayer. And so we have Jesus praying on a mountainside. We have his disciples going further and further out to sea. And some people have described this as an image of the modern church because if you think about it, within that boat was contained the seed of the future church. Almost the entirety of the church at this point is in that boat heading out to sea in darkness as the wind and the waves are picking up. And Jesus is there 
presumably praying for them, interceding on their behalf. But as they head out, things get worse, it gets dark, the waves kick up, and they find themselves in trouble. And the point to note in this part of the story is that the reason they are in trouble is not because they disobeyed Jesus, but because they obeyed him. Jesus, it says, sent them out to sea. And reluctantly, they were like, all right, if you say so, we'll do it. And because they obeyed Jesus, they're actually in peril. But Jesus isn't doing this. It's not a prank. It's not for his own entertainment. It's not to see them get all wound up. He's doing this because he's going to demonstrate his power in a unique way that they could not experience if they hadn't found themselves in so much trouble. And so look what happens next. In Matthew 14, it says, In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to walk to you on water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. In the fourth watch of the night, I imagine not many of us here are familiar with ancient marine you know, terms, but the fourth watch of the night is the darkest part. That's 3 to 6 a.m. So this is the worst possible way. So Jesus waits till the darkest, windiest, most kind of troublesome part of the night before he intervenes. So at this point, they're really panicking. And at this point, he decides to demonstrate his saving power. He goes out to them, and he actually treads down the waves that are distressing and oppressing them. This is an image of how Jesus guards his church. But when he comes to them, because in the ancient world, as in the modern day, people don't walk on water, they cannot work out what's going on. So when they see him, they're like, is this a, is this a ghost? Is, is that what's happening? Is that the kind of thing that happens? But Jesus says to them, take heart, it is I. And this phrase here, it is I, echoes the name of God that we get throughout the Bible. When Moses first meets God and says to him, what's your name? God says, I am who I am. That is, no one names me or gives me a name. I am the one who has always existed. And so the name for God from then on becomes I am. And when Jesus comes to the disciples, effectively he's saying to them, take heart, I am. And they get the cue because they respond to him by worshipping him, the thing you are forbidden to do to anything except God. The description of God in the Old Testament in Job reads somewhat familiar. Listen to what it says in Job 9, 7 to 8. It says, God who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Perhaps it was this passage that Jesus had in mind when he was going to demonstrate the fact that he really was the son of God. But in which way, the disciples get the cue, they read it and they worship him. But this is the part of the story that I love the most. Peter is just so gassed by this whole experience. He just gets so G'd up that he decides to step out the boat himself. I don't know if it was the same in, in like your crew of friends at school, but often, often every crew of guys has one kid in the crew who's low in skill but high in confidence. And let's call him, for the sake of argument, let's call him Davo. 
Devo is very suggestible. So if you were to, in class just say to Devo, hey, um, I think it would be a really good idea if you got your lunch and just threw it into the fan. That's all he needs. That's enough for him to kind of take it and run with it. Now, Peter is Devo, and he's in the boat, and Jesus is walking on water, and Devo, uh, Peter, rather, <laughs> is like, I'll get in on that action. And so he's like, Jesus, I'm coming out. And he steps out in faith, and as he's heading out, he sees the wind and the waves, and he is so shocked by what's happening that he starts to sink, and he cries out to Jesus to save him, and Jesus does. And says to him, Peter, you have little faith. Why don't you just trust in me? Why did you doubt? Then he takes him back into the boat, and he calms the sea, and all of them are amazed, terrified, shocked, all at the same time, and they worship Jesus. Now, what's the point of this last bit of the story? I reckon from a, a lens of kind of a safety culture like we have, we're like, ah, I get it. It's a cautionary tale. This is what happens to people who take risks. Don't be like Peter. That's the problem. But almost every commentator in coming across this story would agree that Peter's faith here is to be commended. There are two people in human history who've walked on water, Jesus and Peter. That he took a risk and stepped out in faith and he experienced more danger than any of them, but he also experienced more power than any of the other disciples. The point of this story is not that you shouldn't be foolish and rash like Peter, but that the more you step out in faith, the more danger you'll experience and the more power. That they go together. And this is the message of the whole story. Think back over the story. The disciples did what Jesus said and it put them in danger. But because of that, they experienced more power than they ever had before as they saw Jesus calm the sea and come to them. In fact, one commentator said it this way, If you never set sail, you'll never know the pain of the cold wind in your face, but you'll also never feel the wind of the Holy Spirit powering you. Peter stepped out in faith even further than those in the boat and he experienced even more power and more danger. Living in the saving power of Jesus frees you up to take risks for the sake of love. Isn't that what the cross is about? Jesus came and died for you to set you free from sin and death, not that you might live the safest, most comfortable possible life that you could, but that you might be freed up by the power of having indestructible life to pour out your life like Jesus did to serve and love others, to take risks knowing that you'll be safe in the saving power of Jesus. You can almost think of it in this way. Imagine you, imagine you had a spare $50 million in Sydney and you put a pool in your backyard. And, um, and you had a friend who had never experienced swimming before. And you said to them, come over, I've got a pool, it's great, safe, landlocked, all that, and you get to experience water, you should do it. And when they rock up, somehow they've gotten hold of one of those like 19th century like metal suits with the, the hose out the top that you have to pump the air into or whatever, and they're geared up in like 200 pounds of pounds. Why would I say pounds? Like, who uses pounds? I guess I was just thinking, you know, it's old, right? Um, but they're in this like massive suit, and they get into the water doing that, and then spend about five seconds in there and then climb out the other side. Of course, you'd say to them, I feel, like, I feel like maybe you've missed the point of today. The point of having like a safe body of water for you is that you can enjoy it knowing that you're completely safe and putting all this gear on really is, is a muted experience of what it should be. And maybe that's a vision of the church on safety mode. That the reason Christ has given us the power of indestructible life, the Spirit of God at work within you, is that you might enjoy 
living for him and taking risks for the sake of his name. Those who, who take few risks experience little power. Because it's true, taking risks for Jesus can be hard. Even note, I mean, even as we come off the back of this doubt series, even note what happens here. As Peter steps out in faith, he also experiences doubt. When he finally gets out there with Jesus, he panics and he experiences a kind of doubt that makes him sink. And the truth is that if you step out in faith and take risks to follow Christ and to further his kingdom and to love people, it may lead to difficulties and challenges that cause you to doubt. But I think it's also true that not taking risks for Jesus leads to doubt as well. In fact, I wonder if this last lockdown period was so doubt-inducing for so many people because, really by no fault of our own, we had to be so deep into safety and withdrawal mode that we really weren't taking many risks for Jesus, for the kingdom, for other people, and couldn't, and so experienced very little of the power of God at work in our lives, which then leads to doubt. Part of the, re- the reason this lockdown might have been so difficult is because we experienced little danger and little power. So here's my challenge to you. If you were here and you describe yourself as look, not particularly religious or reasonably skeptical about the claims of Jesus, my question would be, do you have anything in your life that would be worth risking everything for? That even if you lost your life for it, it would be worth it? Because Jesus' claim is that he is worth it. And if you wanted to dive into those claims, like Felicity was saying, Alpha starts next week, it's over lunch, it would be, really, be really safe, but it would be really dangerous as well. Uh, COVID safe, COVID safe, but what we mean by safe is like uh, a context in which you can ask any question. It's not going to be like, I can't believe you're asking that, you can't ask that here or something like that. Of course, we expect that if you are a, a reasonable modern thinking person, you'll be significantly skeptical about some of the claims of Jesus because they are extraordinary. But it's a space where you can ask those questions and dive into them and see if there's anything to it. Because if Jesus is who he is, I mean, he's not claiming that this is like a lifestyle change or like a change of diet. Following Jesus means throwing your whole life in with him and maybe even losing it, like John the Baptist. And so for that reason, you'd want to be sure that this is true and that this is worth it. The claim is that Jesus is this good. And then the challenge is, if you are a follower of Jesus, here's the question I have for you. When was the last time you took a risk for the sake of Jesus? When was the last time you stuck your neck out for the sake of Jesus and maybe even got hurt? It's definitely been my experience, and hopefully yours as well, that as I've taken risks for the sake of Jesus and loving others like he has called me to, that I've experienced both difficulty and trouble, that I could have avoided by not following Jesus as much, but also experienced his power in a unique way. Even, us, even for us here as a church plant, we know the reality of taking risks for Jesus. Even, just, even small things like heading down to the high school this year added more trouble into this year. We could have played it safe. But we did it because we wanted to love people more like Jesus and to reach people more for Jesus' sake. And you can avoid lots of trouble in your life if you just don't follow too hard after Jesus. But that's not the fullness of what he's called us to live in. To follow Jesus and to step out in faith will mean experiencing danger and risk and trouble and heartache and all kinds of things. But it will also mean experiencing his power in a unique way that you'd also miss out on if you hadn't taken a risk for him. And so I'd encourage you, do something this week that scares you a bit for Jesus.
Look, even I've seen on those like Lululemon bags it says like do so, do something that scares you every day. If you can do it for Lulu, you can do it for Jesus, right? <laughs> and the the promise is so much more significant. I mean, that, that's more like a self help kind of idea of like overcoming anxiety. But this is the call to do it for the sake of other people. So I encourage you. What might you do this week that would actually be a risk? Would you give away even a risky amount of money to alleviate poverty and injustice because Jesus calls you to? I don't know your financial position or whatever, so you do need to be wise about these things. I'm not going into debt and all of that. But is that something you consider? Would you stick your neck out there and in a context where people don't know that you follow Jesus, actually show that you really do? Even though you might lose standing or lose face. Would you invite someone along to Alpha next week? Knowing that really like three out of four times, you'll probably get knocked back. But one out of a quarter time, someone might actually come and have their life completely turned around. Whatever it is to do something, that you might risk something in wanting to really follow after Jesus, knowing that you are safe and secure in his love and you are safe for all eternity, so you're freed up to take risks for his name. What are you going to do this week to risk something for Jesus? But the second one, if I could push it even a little bit further... As we just think about our wider context and heading into 2022, here's something I'd want you to consider for next year if it's available or for the year after, and all of this depends on where you're at financially, all of this sort of stuff. But as the borders open up internationally, everyone's starting to dream again of international travel. And we worship a God who is worshipped in more tongues than any other so-called religion or God. God's global is mission. Sorry, God's mission is global. There we go. Would you consider that as you, can, as you think about traveling overseas, that part of your plans might be to be on a short-term mission trip? And this is not voluntourism, where the main beneficiary of this trip is you, and you get some exotic photos with foreign children that make you look really philanthropic on socials or whatever. Now, short-term mission trips are for the benefit of the missionaries who are there, serving Jesus, helping the poor and the weak and needy, and where you can serve either those missionaries or further the, the thing that they are trying to do in their context, would you consider that even being, a, if you are actually planning to go overseas, putting that as part of your trip or even as the whole of your trip? You might take a risk for Jesus. When we have missionaries connected to this church, where we can't even tell you what country they're in because it is dangerous where they are to share the gospel. You might have an opportunity to serve them. Or even for our link missionaries, the Edwards, over in Ireland. Heading over last year, during COVID, was not living their best life. But they did it for the sake of Jesus. Would you consider a short-term mission trip? Now, I realize that this is probably even trickiest for those who have families. I've heard it said that um, making big kind of life changes or decisions when you have no kids is kind of like having a hatchback. If you just want to... If you want to chuck a U-turn, you just look over your shoulder and then hook it, right? But if you've got a family, it's more like driving a road train where you need to, like, you phone ahead, you organize a safety crew with stop signs and traffic cones, and then by the time you're halfway through the three-point turn, you're like, eh, forget it, I'm just going to keep going this way. And so it takes a lot longer to plan. If you've got little kids, it might be off the cards for a while. But would you consider using that gift if you were in a position to do it? If Jesus put you in a position one of the people in the church, in all church history, who could travel anywhere in the world to use that gift to build Christ's mission across borders. And even that your kids might grow up knowing that they're a part of a church that's global. That this isn't just one culture's kind of 
way that they like to do life, but that the gospel crosses borders and saves lives across the world. Whatever it is, may we not commit our lives to living as safely and comfortably as we possibly can, but we look to serve Jesus and to do what he calls us to do in the world, to risk ourselves, not for our own sake or our own pride, but for the sake of Jesus and for those who need him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a God who has secured our very life by the blood of Jesus. That in him, our sin is washed away completely. That in him, we are made new. That in him, we have life indestructible. May we not use this then to commit our lives to living as comfortably as we possibly can. But strengthen us and give us courage to love people, to serve them even at cost to ourselves, and to do this that Christ might be glorified and honored in our lives. And we pray that in this, that as we experience trouble and hardship for Jesus, as we sacrifice for him, that we'd remember that there is no sacrifice too great or none that can exceed the cross. And that this might move us to joy in laying down our lives for others. And that as we do this, we might experience in new ways your power, your goodness, your love, your provision, and the saving power of Jesus. And Father, we thank you that your word leads us and guides us. And pray that all of this would be for the sake of your holy name. Amen.